opening. It's on page 1048 in the Pew Bible. We uh, do not have children's church uh, this morning, so uh, if you have little kids with you, just feel free to, you know, I understand kids get wiggly. I have four kids, so if, you're, if you need to take your kids out, that's fine. You're not going to bother me. Just do what you need to do to entertain them uh, and keep them uh, happy, so it won't bother me either way. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. Let me read these verses. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And believe it or not, that is the end of Luke. We finally reached the end. Um, I, I went back in my records and checked, and we started this sermon series. The first sermon I preached was in August 21st, 2005. So uh, that's pretty cool. You know, we've been marinating in Luke now for like two years, just letting Luke just soak into us and, and flavor our souls with, with his gospel. Uh, we started off with Jesus' birth, the announcement came to the angels, and then most of our time was spent looking at his public ministry. His teachings, His miracles, the healings that He did, uh, the way He uh, just blessed the crowds, the way He blessed little children, the increasing opposition from the religious elite as they stood against Him. And then this past summer that we just finished, I guess we're done with summer now, it's Labor Day, uh, it, we studied the, what we call the Passion Narrative. That story from Jesus' uh, Last Supper, His arrest, trial, crucifixion, Death, burial, resurrection. And then today we come to the very last panel in the narrative of Jesus' passion, which is His ascension back into heaven. And so really, I feel like this verse today, or these four verses, just tie the whole Gospel together. It kind of puts a big bow on it. This just brings the whole story together because in these last four verses, what we see are two things. Who Jesus is, it sums it all up. And then secondly, how we should respond to that. And that's what we should do anytime we read any of the Gospels. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the main thing that we're supposed to take away from the Gospels, in addition to all the other things, is who is Jesus and what do we do in response. And so anytime you're reading the Gospels and you're like, what is this about? That's what we're supposed to be tuned into. And so right here in the end, it just sums it all up. And so that's what I want to do. I want to look at verses 50 and 51, which tell us again who Jesus is. And then 50 to 50, 52 to 53 show the response of the disciples, which I believe is paradigmatic for how we should respond to who Jesus is. So let's look at first at Jesus and who he is and his ascension. Look at verse 50 again. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. So here we have this really cool moment where Jesus says, led them back to Bethany and he blesses them. And as he's preaching to them and blessing them, he just goes up. He flies. I don't know. He just goes up and he disappears. It says in Acts, which is, of course, the second volume that Luke wrote, at the very beginning of Acts, it says that he went up and disappeared into their cloud and into a cloud and was hidden from their sight. And, you know, I know what you're thinking because even though I've tried to approach this in a scholarly manner, 
I guess I'm just still too much of a little kid inside because I was thinking the same thing. And I was thinking, you know, where did he go? <laughs> I, I'm like, wh- where did he go? Did he, did he go up in the cloud? Did he keep going through the stratosphere? Did he punch a hole in the ozone? Is that why we have global warming? You know, what's going on? Did he, did he go like up past Mars? Was he in outer space? You know, the universe, we're told by physicists, has a boundary to it. That the universe is not infinite. That it's sort of an expanding thing. Maybe heaven or whatever is what's beyond the universe. I don't know. Like, where did he go? And you're like, oh, Jeremy, you're being stupid. Look, it says right there. He went to heaven. Yeah, okay. But where's heaven? Like, where is it? Is it behind the clouds? Is it behind Mars? Is it behind the moon? Uh, is it another dimension? Is heaven, you know, like physicists also tell us that there's different dimensions that we can't see, but they can prove them mathematically. Are there, is, is heaven part of one of those dimensions? Or, or is it just a spiritual reality that goes beyond what we can detect with, uh, you know, scanners and electronics and test tubes? You know, is, is that what it is? You know, what is it? Um, and, and I really don't know. Um, I, I don't know where heaven is exactly. I, I have a sense it's, it's sort of all around us, but we can't see it because it's a spiritual realm or something. But, you know, what do I know? I've never been there yet. I, I hope to go there someday uh, and see where it is. But I think the point of this text is not so much about where Jesus went as what does it mean that he went up into heaven? In other words, what's the significance of his ascension? And don't get me wrong, I believe he really went up to heaven. I believe Jesus literally flew up in the air. I believe he walked on water. I believe God raised him from the dead. So, you know, Jesus going up the air, what's the big deal? <laughs> if there's a God, I can believe in miracles. Give me the craziest miracle, and if there's a God, it's possible. You know, logically, philosophically, intellectually, if there is a God, any miracle is possible. If there's not a God, well, then of course, yeah, flying in the air is ridiculous. But if there is a God, I mean, he could do whatever he wants to do. And so I believe Jesus literally went up in the air. But the question is, what was that to communicate. Why did he do it that way? Why didn't he just go poof and disappear? Or, you know, whatever. Why didn't he get in a chariot and ride off in the distance? Why did he leave his disciples by going up? And I think the significance is, and I'd like to argue it here a little bit this morning, is that by going up, just to really sum it up, what it was communicating is that Jesus is Lord. That's what it was communicating. That He is the Sovereign Lord. That by being, going up, He was being exalted. And in their understanding of, uh, of how the world works, it was a way of communicating to them that He was exalted and Lord over them. Uh, in fact, I think that Luke hints that way in verse 50. Look there. Before we even get to the ascension, notice it says, when He led them out to the vicinity of Bethany. So Jesus is in the lead and they're following Him. And then they come to Bethany near the Mount of Olives. And uh, if you remember at the beginning of the Passion Narrative, that's where Jesus staged His entrance into Jerusalem on, uh, riding on Palm Sunday as the King. So just mentioning Bethany kind of brings back those echoes uh, of His kingly ride into Jerusalem. And then He blesses them. So already in verse 50, we have three different ways in which Jesus is being placed as the authority over the disciples. And then I think the clincher is when He goes up into heaven. So... In the worldview of those days, in the cultural and, and linguistic sort of ways of thinking back then, to go up or to be up was to be in a place of supremacy or lordship over somebody. So kings back then, they sat on a throne, they were up, and the throne was up on a dais of some sort. And if you went into the presence of the king, what did you do? 
you bowed, right? You put, you kind of, you know, whatever kneel or you prostrate yourself before the king. And the the idea of that those body gestures was, you are over me, you are in authority, you're the Lord, and so I, I put myself below you. Or I think of Isaiah chapter six when Isaiah has that amazing vision of God. Do you guys remember that? It says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and where was he? High and lifted up, seated on a throne. And so the throne of God, His authority, is tied to being high and lifted up. Uh, It says in uh, the Old Testament, God says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. You ever see those bumper stickers? little bumper sticker of the planet Earth and it says, Love your mother. You see those? I I think we should make a Christian version of that. A little bumper sticker planet Earth that says, Love God's footstool. You know, know, something like that. Just to say, look, it's not your mother. Earth is not God. It's just the footstool of God. Because He's above and He's high and He's exalted over all things. And I don't want to belabor the point because I think the the idea of something being up and above has the same similar connotations in our culture. You know, we talk about climbing up the corporate ladder. Uh, We say, I'm at the top of my golf game. We say, uh, you know, I'm in the penthouse. I've gone up to the top of of society. And so up, I think, has a similar connotation for us. But that's the key preposition here in verse 51 is up. He was taken up into heaven. And in fact, that's how the disciples interpreted his going up. You know, what what did it mean to them? Well, they wrote it down. And interestingly, every time in the New Testament they talk about Jesus going up to the right hand of God, they always talk about His supremacy, lordship, authority over this world. Um, just do this for me. Put a bookmark here in Luke 24 and flip over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. And this is a text in which Peter is preaching to the crowds on the day of Pentecost. And he interprets Jesus is going up. And what does it mean? So look at Acts chapter 2, verse 32. We'll just jump in near the end of the sermon here, of Peter's sermon. He says in verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Here we go. Exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So what does it mean that he's exalted to the right hand of God? Well, verse 34, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so the fact that Jesus ascended to God's right hand, Peter says that means he's the Lord. He has the supremacy and the sovereignty over all things. Um, or look again at Acts chapter 7. Here's another great example. This is the story of Stephen. You guys know the story of Stephen? He was one of the leaders in the early church. He was the first Christian martyr. Uh, Jesus died. And after Jesus, the first one to die for his faith was Stephen. And Stephen is preaching to the crowds. And finally he starts telling the crowds, you know, you crucified Jesus and he's the Lord, and, and you crucified him, and you're not listening to God. And This just sends them through the roof. They hate this. So in verse 54 of, Luke, of Acts chapter 7, it says, When they heard this, that's talking about the crowds, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. They're just coming unglued. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. That's what my kids do when they just get really mad at each other. They just cover their ears and they're like, yeah! (laughs) They don't want to listen anymore. You just come unglued. Uh, you know, we used to do that when we were kids. You know, put your fingers in your ear and go, no, 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 I don't want, I can't hear you. They just don't want to hear it. And then, and then after they yell, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they're stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just like Jesus prayed. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this against sin against him. He forgave just as Jesus did. So we see Stephen's martyrdom is paralleled to Jesus' death on the cross intentionally uh, that way. <clears throat> so Jesus is Lord. He's exalted. And this is really the message of the church. This is the message we have to bring to the world. The exaltation and supremacy of Jesus. The basic confession of Islam is there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. But the basic confession of Christianity is very simple. Jesus is Lord. That's why the early Christians got fed to lions. <laughs> it's because they refused to worship Caesar. They refused to worship Zeus. They refused to drink at the festivals of Bacchus. They, they, they worshipped and they said, no, no, there's one Lord. His name is Jesus and he's Lord even over Caesar. And off to the lions they went. Because they're standing up and proclaiming that very controversial kind of message. You go, I don't know. I mean, Jesus is Lord. That sounds kind of intolerant. I don't know. This, it sounds kind of, you know, tough. I, I don't know if people are going to really like that. Yeah, they might not. I mean, they didn't like it in Stephen's day. Look what happened to him. But that's our message: is the the sovereignty and lordship of Jesus that He's up and above. You know, another way to look at it is contrast that with the way our culture today thinks about spirituality or thinks about God. You know, because America is a very spiritual country. It really is. There's not a lot of atheism in America, like true atheism. I mean, there's some, but really, if you look at all the Gallup polls and Barna polls and this poll and that poll, Americans are very spiritual, uh, but it's a different kind of spirituality. It's not a spirituality where God is primarily up, where we submit to Him and glorify Him because He's the Lord. Rather, there's a different preposition that describes American spirituality. Instead of up, the preposition I think that describes American spirituality today is the preposition in. It's in. It's not he's up there, it's, it's in here. And I need to go in here to find the truth. And so American spirituality is very privatized. It's very kind of therapeutic. It's very pragmatic. And it's me piecing together little things I believe to make up my own little religion that works for me. And yours is different and it works for you and you pick and choose what's good for you. And and so, you know, as meaning has collapsed, as we no longer in America really believe in absolute truth, as postmodernism has collapsed the the ceiling of meaning around us, and like we talked about last Sunday, there's no more meta-narratives in people's minds, no more overarching truth. All that's collapsed. We can't look up anymore. And so if we want to find something beyond ourselves, we kind of do this ironic thing, we look within ourselves. Uh, I was reading this, this great book that kind of talks about some of these things. It's a book by David Wells called Above All Earthly Powers and um, Christ in a Postmodern World is what it's talking about. But there's this one section where he records this kind of interview with this couple. And their names are uh, Ed and Joanne Liver- Liverani. And this couple, uh, 
sort of exemplifies this slow inward turn away from a God who's above to a God who's within. And let me just sort of read this section. It's really interesting. Years of Catholic school never taught either of them to cope, according to them. Indeed, they said, it only made them more neurotic. By now, they said, quote, there isn't a church in all of America I want to go to. So sometime in the last ten years, the Liveranis began to build their own church, salvaging bits of their old religion they liked and chucking the rest. The first thing to go were an angry, vengeful God and hell. That's just something they say to scare you, Ed said. They did keep Jesus, by the way, because, quote-unquote, Jesus is big on love. From the local bookstore, in a bulging section called Private Spirituality, they found wisdom in places they had never before searched or even heard of. In Zen masters, in New Age chestnuts like A Course in Miracles or their latest book, Conversations with God. Now they commune with a new God. A gentle twin of the one they grew up with. He's wise but soft-spoken. Cheers them up when they're sad. Laughs at their little quirks. He is most essentially validating. Like the greatest of friends. And best of all, this God had been there all along. Here's what they say. This is what Joanne says. Quote, We discovered the God within. That's why we need God because, she says, we are God. And I read that. I was like, that's just what I hear everywhere. You know, that's what I hear on the talk shows and that's what I hear when people talk about spirituality. Next time you hear people talking about spirituality or about God, don't just go like, oh, cool, another Christian. I mean, stop. Just tune in. Be like, what are you saying specifically about God? Is it a God who is up or is it a God who is in? And if you listen, a lot of times what you find is the God they're talking about is just kind of sort of a, a therapeutically oriented, uh, self-affirming kind of inner voice is all they're talking about. It's within. It's just you know looking into a mirror and worshiping what you see. It's the God within. And I'll tell you, if I'm God, then God is Satan. Because... <laughs> If I look in myself, I don't see much divine. I, I see a lot of things I'm not proud of. I see a lot of things that are shameful. I see a lot of things that are against God's laws. And I'm not God. That's just the most obscene, ridiculous thing. In case you were wondering, can I just help clear this up for you? You're not God. Okay? Maybe you thought you were when you drove in this morning. I, mean, I hate to burst your bubble. You're not. We're not God. We're His creation. We're made by Him. But He is above and beyond us. And if all of us on planet Earth went poof and ceased to exist, God would still be just fine without us. Because we're not God. He is above, not within. And this is what the church we're called to proclaim. And I think one of the reasons there's so much anemia in the evangelical church today is because we lose that message. And we lose that central proclamation that it's about the supremacy of Jesus. We've, we've lost our ability to savor and delight in the supremacy of Jesus. And instead, we, we have churches where we're like, all right, we've got to make church more interesting to people. All right, what are we going to do? Well, you know, we, we don't want to talk about hell because, well, people don't like that and they don't like this. But, you know, what do they like? Well, people like TV. So let's, you know, let's do movies in church. Let's do movie clips. Let's, you know, have video. Let's have, you know, whatever. W- whatever it takes to get people into church to like church and to make it relevant, there's this ten- tendency to say, let's get people to see that. And, and I just think that while that sounds wise from sort of a conventional wisdom standpoint, it, it doesn't take into account that there's no spiritual power in movies in terms of power to save us. 
Again, I love movies. I watch movies too. But I'm not going to be saved by watching a good movie. I'm saved by Jesus and His power. It's only the power of Christ that can really breathe life into the church. And so, really, rather than trying to say, hey, how can we, like chameleons, blend into the culture? I think what we have to do as a church is, in some ways, step away from it and say, no, no, let's be clear. It's not about in, it's about up. And we need to draw lines and say, no, no, God is different than where our culture is at. He's in a different place. And so, calling ourselves toward holiness and toward God. And so, I think the way to revive churches is to exalt the Word of God and exalt the name of Jesus. And that as Jesus is lifted up, as His supremacy is celebrated and declared and savored by His people, it pours a spiritual life and vitality into the church that we can't get by simply trying to re-engineer how we do this, that, or the other thing. And you see that spiritual life here in the text. If I could just move on quickly to the second half of the text. Notice what happens when the disciples finally grasp fully who Jesus is. As Jesus is exalted as Lord in their eyes, as He goes up into heavens and they're like, I get it. You know, Look what it does. It produces certain things. They respond in a certain way. Um, and maybe respond is not the right word because you know, it's, it's not like the disciples saw Him go up into heaven and said, well guys, how should we respond to this? What do you think? It's, just, it's instinctive. When you start savoring the supremacy of Jesus... This stuff just comes out of you naturally. It's like, you know, when you go to the doctor and he gives you the, the thing. You know, it's not like, all right, here it comes, I'm going to do it. You know, you just, you just relax and it happens. Same thing when, when we begin to savor the supremacy of who Christ is in our hearts. These things just kind of flow. It's just natural Christianity. You don't have to work at it. You don't have to try to force yourself to do it. And the first thing that happens, notice three things that happen to the disciples. The first is they worship Jesus. Verse 52, then they worshipped Him. That's a profound statement. Who's the Him? It's Jesus. You know, there's this kind of idea that's out there that like Jesus really wasn't God, but after about 400 years, the church had some councils and they decided to say He was God because that reinforced their religion and their authority. No, no, no. The early Christians worshipped Jesus. And that's really a tremendous statement because all the disciples are Jews who were robustly monotheistic in the Roman Empire. I mean, they, they stuck out in the Roman Empire because they wouldn't worship all the other gods. They said there's only one God. You know, the, the key uh, confession of Judaism is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. That's the Shema. And they say that. Um, this is kind of their basic confession. And so here are a bunch of Jews who believe in only one God, and they're worshiping Jesus. And so th- this was a belief of the earliest Christians that he was more than God, and more than just a rabbi, that he was God. And they worshipped him and they exalted him. And so the first thing that happens when we begin to really savor the supremacy of Jesus is it should just transform our worship. Our, our worship should be about him and focused on his glory. The songs we sing, the scriptures we read, what we do in corporate worship should be all about Jesus. Now again, the temptation is what? And instead of to go up, it's to go in. That's our temptation. And to look at the worship of the church in terms of, you know, what's good for me. And you hear about the worship wars, and some people are like, well, I like choruses. Oh, yeah, well, I like hymns. You know, I like drums. Well, I like the organ. Well, I like reggae. Well, I like country, you know. Well, I kind of like punk. Well, I'm kind of into rap, you know. And, and so, 
well, let, I know, let, let's just have our, our church be filled with different rooms and every room have different music. And so it's like a radio station. You can decide what you like. You know? <laughs> People, when it comes to worship, I, I don't want to offend you, but who cares what you like? Who cares what I like? It's not about you and what you like. It's about Him and His glory. I'm going to give you my philosophy of worship in a nutshell. Here's my philosophy of worship. We focus on Jesus. Everything we sing and we do is focused on Jesus. And then we look around the church and we say, what are the gifts God's given us? Has God given us a great choir? I want to hear that choir singing about Jesus. Has God given us guitarists? I want to hear them playing their guitars for Jesus. Has God given us great brass? I want to hear the brass tooting their horns for Jesus. That's what I want. Let's just keep the focus on Him and whatever God's gifts He's given to our church, then we use those gifts to worship and glorify Him. I think, you know? And if I don't like something, it's a big deal. Who cares? (laughs) It's about Jesus. And I think that when I get my eyes off myself and my needs, and I start focusing on who Christ is, Oh, my heart is just filled up with Him, and I can worship Him in any way. You know, I can even worship. I, I've been to church services where they're singing a different language. I don't even know what they're saying, but somehow I can worship with them. I don't know. It's weird, but you just get caught up because you sense the Holy Spirit is there, and you know the people are worshiping Christ. And maybe I hear a tune of a hymn that I don't know what they're saying, but another hymn, and I'll sing it along because it's all about who Christ is. And so we, we just need our hearts to be warmed up and, and turned toward Christ in worship. And that happens when He's supreme. Then I have something to sing about and to worship Him for. But not only does it produce worship, the supremacy of Christ produces joy. Great joy. Look at verse 52. Then they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So, they're just overflowing with happiness at what God has done. Now this Greek word for joy... It's a word that's used to describe the emotional response to something great that God has done. Uh, you know, some kind of miraculous thing. Like you guys all saw yesterday, 22-year-old kid pitches a no-hitter. <laughs> we just go bananas. We talk about joy, and everyone's like running around like I can't believe this, and you know, Fenway's going crazy, and the team's going crazy, and, and that's that's the biblical idea of joy: is you see something amazing. And you respond with happiness and delight. And what we have to rejoice about is Jesus. He lived the no-hitter. He never sinned. He never flinched. He went all the way to the cross. He never turned to the right or the left. He took the cross and He rose again. He's the perfect guy that has never before, never since lived. And it's like, and He did it for my salvation. And so we have such great grounds for joy. And for happiness. And it's not just a shallow kind of joy. You know, I, I think people are looking for happiness today. But again, where do we go? We go inward. We say, okay, you know, I just got to look in the mirror and tell myself, you know, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And just keep telling myself that. And, you know, and, and if I can do that enough, then I'll be happy. And it doesn't work. You, you can't crank happiness up within yourself. It's not about having more of a positive attitude. Or, you know, the other thing we do when we look inward as we say, okay, what are my needs? I need to have my needs met. If I, my, if I had my needs met, I'd be happy. You know, My wife's not meeting my needs and making me happy, and my kids aren't meeting my needs, and my boss isn't meeting my needs. And so, you know, if people just met my needs, then that's why, so what I have to do. I have to be about my needs and figure out what I need and having some time for me and me time. And, you know, and, and we turn inward thinking, that's going to make us happy. 
And the funny thing is, the sad thing is, we're not even really aware of our greatest needs. You know, you know what your greatest need is and my greatest need? It's to be saved from the judgment of God. You and I are sinners. And we live under the wrath of Almighty God. And apart from a Savior, you are going to burn in hell forever. And so am I. And so I need a Savior. I, I, I can't save myself. That's what I need, is a Savior from heaven to rescue me from God's fiery judgment. And when I realize what Jesus has done on the cross to rescue me from my sin and my rebellion and judgment and to make me into a child of God, if that won't give you joy, then I don't know what's going to work. Because that is the basis of Christian joy. You know what I love to read? Just to, when, I get, when I find myself kind of spiritually dull and I just am not sensing how great God is and what He's done for me and I get lost in the world, I just commend this to you. Go, go find some Jonathan Edwards sermons. That is just the best reading. I'm telling you, his sermons on hell are so encouraging. I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I love his hell sermons. Because I just, you know, I, I know it sounds morbid. I really, I'm, I'm a happy-go-lucky guy. I'm not, I'm not morbid. But you read his hell sermons and you're like, like, you know, I need someone to just yank my head out of this world and be like, all right, Jeremy, look. Look how great and holy God is. And look what a sinner you are. I'm like, yeah, I see that now. And look what the consequences are. Look how great hell is. And look what God has saved you from. It's so amazing. And, and so I need my mind to be lifted to the eternal perspective on things. And when you have that, then you have joy. It doesn't matter. Your life could be falling apart. You could lose your job. You know, life could be just like a country music song. You know, I lost my song. Lost my job. Lost my girl. Lost my dog. Lost my truck or whatever. And, and there's, still, there's still joy. And, you know, not that Christians don't struggle. And I even believe Christians can be depressed. I think we can go through difficult times in our lives. I'm not saying that Christians should always be like, you know, happy-go-lucky. But even when we're going through the darkest times of our life, there, there's a, a deep aquifer of joy that is not dependent upon our life circumstances, that we draw upon. It's a theological depth to it. That regardless of what's happening, Jesus is Lord. He loves me. He saved me. And even if this life is hard, as Paul says in Romans 8, I do not consider our present sufferings worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so we live in light of another world. We live in light of a Savior who is above. And so there's a joy that cannot be touched by this world's circumstances. So the disciples are filled up with that joy. The joy that comes from recognizing that Jesus is Lord and His supremacy over all things, even my circumstances. And then the final thing, I just have to wrap this up quickly. They see the supremacy of Jesus and they worship Him. They're filled with joy. And the last thing it does is it creates obedience in our lives. Obedience. Notice again verse 52. It says, They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So now why are they at the temple? Why are they in Jerusalem? Why are they hanging out there? And the answer is because that's what Jesus told them to do. If you go back to verse 49... Jesus says, I'm going to send you what the Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And so they're obeying Him. They're waiting for Him. They're going to carry out His mission to take the Gospel to the whole world. And so that's the last thing that happens. Is, is not only are we filled up with worship for who God is and filled up with joy in Christ, but then we want to do what He says. 
And, you know, if you're struggling with obedience as a Christian, which we all do in different areas, the way to overcome sin in our lives and to find obedience and victory is to delight ourselves in Christ. And the more we delight ourselves in Him and the more we love Him, we will naturally want to obey His commandments. You know, the way to overcome sin isn't just like, oh, I'm going to try harder this time. Eh, it's not going to work. It's my heart has to be filled up with love for Christ. And so it's out of that love for Christ that obedience just flows into our lives. And again, if we try to go in, we're not going to find it. In is a dead end. If I go in, you know, I'm told, Jeremy, you know, follow your dreams, man. Follow your heart. Don't obey anyone else. Just obey what that little voice inside is telling you. That's the, the wisdom of this world. It's finding my authority within instead of finding it above in Christ. Everyone has a God. Everyone has a God. The question is, what's your God? All right? Is it Him or is it you or is it money or is it sex or is it your job or is it your athletics? or what? You know, What's your God? We all have one. Some of us have many. Some of us are polytheists. We don't even know it. What's your God? And, uh, and Jesus is saying, He is Lord. And He's ascended to heaven to show that. So you've been listening to Luke for two years now, uh, some of you, and we've got to hang out with Jesus for two years. I just want to end by challenging you and just saying, where are you at with Jesus? Have you ever come to that place in your life where you've laid down your arms and surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus, received the forgiveness that He has to offer? Where are you at with Jesus? Do you look up and say, you are Lord, and do you give your life to Him? Or are you following some other God? Who do you worship? What is your religion? Everyone has one. Everyone has one. Jesus is calling you to Himself. He's commanding everyone everywhere to turn and surrender to Him because He is the Lord. He's the general, the captain to whom we're called to service with Him. Would you open up your hearts to Christ? Let's bow our heads and pray together. You know, if you are one who wants to turn to Jesus, I would just invite you to pray a simple prayer in your own words, in your own heart. Something like, Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner. I want you to save me and I want you to follow me. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. And just in your own words and in your own heart, just pray that to God and cry out to Him for salvation. And Jesus, I pray for our church. That we would be a church where Jesus is, where you, Jesus, are supreme. Where we savor your supremacy. And we delight in the freedom that your Lordship brings. And God, I pray that because of who you are, that our worship would be heartfelt and real and Christ-focused. I pray that our lives would be filled up with joy, even in the face of testing and trial. And God, I pray that we would uh, be obedient to You, that we'd be a holy church and that our obedience would not flow from legalism, but that it would flow from love. So Lord Jesus, be at work in our church, we pray. And we ask all this in Your holy name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing uh, Hallelujah, What a Savior. It's found in your bulletin. It's also in your hymnal number 311. Would you stand and let's sing uh, Hallelujah, What a Savior.